One Small, Valuable Thing by Chad Pfeiffer. Part 1 The first time the old man looked at me, he was taking a piss in the snow. I'd stepped out of the house for a smoke. It must have been 10 or 11 degrees out there. The world was frozen over. Nobody was out. I was drunk. It was probably 7 in the morning. The old man appeared on the corner down the street, walking his dog, I don't know, maybe 6 or 7 houses away. Bald guy, tall, black suit. The dog looked just like him, skinny, bony, all in black. Some kind of Doberman, I guess. I watched him cross from one corner to the next, slow but deliberate. The dog didn't seem to mind the pace. They stopped, and the dog sniffed around the bottom of a street sign while the man stared down at him. It looked uh, peaceful. These two thin figures against the dead silent snow, like some kind of charcoal drawing. Then the dog lifted his leg and did his business. There you go, I thought. Sweet relief in the morning. Better than anything. As if he'd read my mind, the old man turned away from the dog, unzipped his pants, and started pissing in the snow himself, right out in the open, still holding the leash in one hand. I couldn't believe it. He and the dog were facing away from each other like they were trying to be polite, this leash dangling in a smile between them. The scene had gone from serene to ridiculous, and I'd kind of chuckled as I put out my smoke. That was when the old man snapped his head to the side and looked at me. Impossible for him to have heard me laugh or anything, but that's when he looked his hands tucking and zipping at his pants, independent of his gaze. I couldn't tell you what his expression was because of the distance, but I didn't like the feel of it. The dog pawed at the snow around the sign. The old man continued to look my way, his body now just as frozen as the street. I was back in the house before I could decide whether to wave or flick him off, slamming the door against the cold. Something had disturbed me about the situation, but I didn't know why. I felt lightheaded. There was a last gulp of Jack waiting in a measuring cup on the kitchen counter. I stepped over, knocked it back, and pulled the sheet away from the window. It was too frosty to see much outside, but I felt like the old man and moved on. I looked a while longer for some kind of glimpse, but the frost just stayed where it was. I wandered into the bedroom to tell Grace about the old man. She was asleep on our mattress, surrounded on three sides by electric space heaters. The bedroom was the only place with any warmth at all, and she was in the center. One of her legs was poking out from under the blankets, just a little brown calf tapering into a fluffy polka-dotted sock. I leaned over and pinched her big toe, swaying a bit. Hey, I said. She kicked at me and rolled up from under the layers. I could see her face now, squinting. Shut up, she said. What are you doing? What time is it? She burrowed back into the bed. I took off the coat and the flannel, threw them against the chair and made my way into a sitting position on the floor, scooting over to the mattress. Hey! I whispered, leaning over her. You won't believe what just happened. She didn't respond, but I told her about it all anyway. After I was done, she waited a moment, then pulled the covers around herself and sat up a bit to look at me. He was bald? Like he wasn't wearing a hat? No. Who goes out in this shit with no hat? Who walks their dog in this? Who pees outside in this? You could pee all day in the middle of the street. Nobody's out there to see. I'm saying who goes out without a hat. 
I don't know, maybe he lives right there. Please, she said. You're the only white guy living in this neighborhood, and the only bald guy. She dove back down under the covers, making one last muffled comment. And the only old guy. Grace is 19, I'm 23. That's all the difference there is, but I guess it makes me the old one. She's black and Vietnamese, so she can get away with calling me white, but she's wrong about the bald thing. I have hair, I just choose to shave my head. Back in high school, I wore it long and dyed it black. All I cared about was drawing, talking shit, taking road trips, drinking by the river with the guys. No consequences. That was before the army. I was in my second tour when things got cut short. We'd only been in Kunar province for five weeks. I was driving a truck with my buddy Gustavo riding shot. Our patrol had taken some small arms fire in the morning, but it was over for the time being and we were feeling relaxed, just bullshitting each other. I was actually goofing on the Pope when it happened. Gustavo grew up Catholic, so he was loving it. Then I hit the IED and we just fucking went boom. I honestly don't remember it. When I woke up, the doctor told me I was in Italy. I said, no shit, I was just talking about the Pope. He got a big kick out of that. I'd been unconscious for a week. Gustavo didn't make it. Coming back to Iowa after that, nothing was the same. I'd managed to keep all of my limbs, but I was spooky in the head and everybody knew it. Couldn't concentrate. My ears would ring. Sometimes I didn't know where I was at night, and I couldn't remember a goddamn thing. The pupil in my right eye had been blown when my head got knocked in, and it had never come back to looking right. I could see out of the eye okay, but the whole thing was practically black, and it bothered my little sister, who didn't want much to do with me anymore. That was harder than anything, I suppose. The way she looked at me. So, I drank. Drank all the time. My parents had been keeping me in my old room, but just couldn't handle it after a while, so they found me a bachelor apartment near Davenport West, my old school, and ponied up rent for a few months. It was on the condition that I worked this shitty security job in a parking garage next to a shopping center. I tried to do it their way, but after a few shifts, I said fuck it and never went back. I'm not lazy. I wasn't mad at my folks, and I wasn't trying to get back at anybody. Maybe I was just humiliated. I, I don't know. I met Grace right around that time, in the late summer, both of us trying to catch a ride home from a bar at two in the morning. Nobody would take us anywhere, so we ended up walking together and then sitting on some swings in the park, just like we were kids. It was one of those golden moments I didn't think could ever happen again. Four in the morning, with the smell of grass in the air, staring at a girl's smile, laughing, bumping shoulders as we swung sideways and talked and swung sideways and talked. I mean, the girl was a drunk like me, it was obvious, but there was a light inside of her that warmed me right up. Something that made me feel like I should take a shot at life again. Like I could climb back into the driver's seat. Grace moved into the bachelor with me a few weeks later. She'd been living in her ex-stepmother's condo but had to get out. The woman kept taking on cats and the whole place smelled like ammonia. On top of that, she had overheard the ex-step on the phone telling a man that if he brought over $50 and a bottle of something, she might have a girl for him. That was all it took. Grace punched the bitch in the stomach and hit the road. Once my parents finally gave up on me and the rent stopped coming, we moved from the apartment into a nearby squat, this little house that had been foreclosed on in a neighborhood that's been rotting from the inside since I was a kid. It was supposed to be temporary while we cleaned up and found jobs, but we were still drinking with every last cent I had in savings. We just couldn't get to bed at night, 
walking around the house, talking it all out, everything either of us had ever thought or experienced. When we could wake up in time, we'd get down to the library to use the computers and look for jobs, but we both knew we were dragging our asses. Then the winter came. We were lucky that the power still worked in the house. For some reason, it had never been shut down. I'd taken the space heaters from my folks, and we were getting by with them, but it was desperate, man. The cold was brutal. We knew we could lose the electric at any minute and freeze, or we could get thrown out by the cops and freeze. Either way, we had to do something, and soon. All of this was on my mind the morning I saw the old man. And when I saw him again the next day, a real bad idea started forming in my head. I'm no thief. Even when I've been the most down and out, I've never stolen to pay my way. It's just not fair, I don't think, taking other people's shit. Like, when I was a kid, I used to wear my Uncle Kip's dog tags. He'd given them to me after noticing all the tanks I was drawing on my grade school notebooks, all the guns I used to design in sloppy detail. I loved those dog tags. The way the small metal orbs on the chain felt, almost like a rosary. The way the metal was cold against my bare chest. One day in high school, I took them off and hung them in my locker during gym class. When I came back, the locker was kicked in and they were gone. I don't know who took them or why they would even want them, but I tried to beat the shit out of a Mexican kid in the next period just because he'd shrugged when I told him about it. He put me in a headlock and nearly choked me to death. That's what thieving does, man. It's bad business for everybody. But after I saw the old man a second time, I started thinking, what if we stole something just once, and not to support the drinking, but to get us out of the cold? Something that somebody didn't really need. Something that was probably insured. I knew that with a little dough I could get us back into my bachelor, and my old friend Jim Tingle told me he was always on the lookout for stolen shit if it was small and had what he called demonstrable value, meaning you didn't need an outside expert to say it was worth a lot of money. He sold weed out of his van like a delivery service, but doing the fence thing was a good second income. Once a month, he would drive boxes of whatever shit he'd acquired up to Chicago and turn a profit through his connections with the Black Disciples. It was like the path out of misery had paved itself in front of me. Grab some scratch, get my place back, find a job, and marry my girl. Easy. So I started keeping watch at the window for my mark. Sure enough, every day the old man walked his dog past the bottom of our street, always at different times, but along the same route. He never did the pissing thing again, but he repeated that same slow, deliberate pace, always dressed in some spiffy black suit, no hat, on his shiny bald head. Grace joined me by the window on the fifth day, both of us taking pulls from a nasty bottle of creme de menthe we'd found in the back of a cupboard. Tomorrow I'm going to follow him, I said. Your new boyfriend, she said, and laughed. The next day I pulled on my coat and skullcap the minute I saw the man hit the corner, but before I could get through the door, Grace grabbed me, throwing her thick blue scarf around my neck and wrapping it across my nose and mouth. It smelled just like her, my beautiful girl. Her cocoa butter skin. To keep you warm, she said. But I think she already knew what I was up to. I gave her a squeeze and hit the street, my face masked by the scarf. The man had a predictable stride and he never looked back. I mean, never looked back. So the slow-mo pursuit was a cinch. I'd walk about a street's length behind him, careful not to make much noise, even at a distance, pause to light a smoke when he'd turn a corner, then hustle a bit to catch up. The dog loped along right at his side, keeping just as steady a pace and ignoring the cars, fire hydrants, and snowballing kids along the way. 
It was hypnotic how they moved together, all smooth, like they were on one of those conveyor belts that people ride at the airport, those flat escalator things. But the weirdness wasn't just in the style of the walk, it was in the goddamn length of the walk. That was the real surprise. I swear we were trudging through the freezing cold for almost two hours. Two hours this crazy old man walked! We weaved through the ghetto neighborhoods around my squat, down through February Park, and then sliced back and forth through neighborhood after neighborhood, till we were miles away on the hills of McClellan Heights, where mansions looked down on the icy Mississippi. I was beat by the time we got there, but the old man pivoted into his driveway without a single sign of fatigue, even though he must have walked at least twice as far as me if he was all the damn way out in my neck of the woods. All I could think was, how much exercise does this fucking Doberman need? The house was a wide, two-story joint with about nine or ten trees on the sprawling front lawn, all reaching up to the sky with arthritic, clutching branches. It was well-kept, but gray and a little bland for such a ritzy place. No lights were on inside, no smoke was coming out of the chimney, and nobody seemed to be waiting for the codger in a window. As I continued to stroll by, head down, nonchalant, I imagined a family could make a great home there. But with the man slowly creeping up to the door, unlocking it and leading the dog inside without saying hello to anybody, it only seemed like some kind of sad museum. And museums are full of things with demonstrable value. During our many drunken conversations in the squat, Grace had owned up to a whole load of shit she'd done before we met, from stealing earrings at the mall to siphoning gas in a church parking lot. I tried to play it cool when I came back from my long walk with the man, but she could tell I had crime on my mind. When I borrowed my buddy Randall's car a few days later, she was the one who zipped up my coat, put a ball cap on my head, and shoved a cardboard box under my arm. After seeing the old man float past our street with his dog in the morning, she handed me the keys and I drove right up to his house, parking on the street. I grabbed the box, walked up the drive to the front door, and rang the bell just like a delivery man. Grace had told me to be obvious when scoping a joint out. People don't notice obvious. After a few minutes had passed and nobody came to the door, I wandered around the side of the house as if I were looking for a place to safely leave the package, scanning the surroundings for signs of nosy eyes. I probably looked guilty as hell, but the neighbors weren't watching as far as I could see. Around the back, where the yard plunged down into a ravine and the river revealed itself in the distance, I found a point of entry after a quick search along the icy path that ran the house's perimeter. A small doggy door was built into the wall, almost hidden behind a large, chunky air conditioning unit. Its aluminum hatch only lifted outward, but after a few minutes of fiddling with my pocket knife, I was able to pull it up and peer through the opening at a darkened kitchen. I got to my feet and searched the yard quickly for a branch, being careful not to leave boot prints in the snow. Returning to the doggy door, I lifted the hatch again and pushed the branch through the opening into the kitchen, waved it around, then removed it and threw it back into the yard. After ten minutes of waiting in the car, no alarms had sounded and nobody had come to arrest me. Okay. It seemed like the house could be entered through the doggy door without tripping alarms. But I could never fit through the door myself. I passed the old man and his dog as I drove home to tell Grace. Our plan was pretty basic. Grace would squeeze through the doggy door, find one valuable thing for us to sell, and then slip out with it and drive home. On foot, I would follow the old man as he walked the dog so that we knew how much time she had. I spent some of our last money getting two disposable cell phones from Jim Tingle. I told him I'd be back soon with something to sell him, if I was lucky. Randall lent me his car again, this time for a fictional doctor's appointment. 
The last time had been for groceries. Early the next morning, Grace drove off to park near the old man's neighborhood, and about two hours later, I gave her the call. I see him. He just crossed the bottom of our street. You're good to go. About time. Grace's voice whispered over the phone. We better celebrate after this is all done. I promise, I said. She didn't sound nervous at all as she hung up. My girl. The man and dog walked the route for the next 20 minutes. I followed them at a distance, doing my usual stealth routine. The phone vibrated. You think anybody saw you, I asked. How do you get this fucking thing open? I could hear my knife clacking against the doggy door. I told you, you have to be real gentle. Clack. Clackety, clack, clack. Shit. Grace, come on, I whispered. Just take it easy. Poke the point into the right side and lift. You can't use a lot of force. Shut up. You're making it harder. She hung up. An SUV blasting music rolled past the old man and the dog, but neither reacted, gliding along at their slow, steady pace. Another 15 minutes and the phone vibrated again. Okay, I'm in. Grace whispered, finally. This place is huge. I'm tracking mud everywhere. We'll throw the shoes out later. Just keep your gloves on and find something valuable. Start from upstairs. Bedrooms and shit. It smells in here. It smells like something really spoiled. I could hear her coughing. Grace? It's okay. Hold on. Click. She hung up again. I wished I'd gone to the bathroom before leaving. In all the excitement, I'd forgotten. It made the moments before the next call stretch on forever. I wondered if this was how the old man had felt the first day I noticed him, so uncomfortable that he was willing to risk his elderly dignity in exchange for relief. At last, another vibration from the phone. It's really dark. Use the light if you have to, but hurry. I wish you could see these paintings of people everywhere. They look really old, like from George Washington days. Probably worth a fortune. I don't think you can get those through the hatch, baby. Don't waste time. The dog was sniffing at a street sign and the old man stopped walking. I turned and wandered around the corner of an apartment building, keeping watch on the man out of the corner of my eye. The dog began to relieve itself and I envied the little bastard. The bedrooms don't have shit, she whispered. I'm going to the room at the end of the hall. Hold on. A long pause. Quiet. White noise from the phone, then. Whoa, man, this place is weird. What do you mean? It's not a typical old guy's place. It's all black, and there are weird symbols all over the walls, like all over the place, even on the floor. This guy's a total metalhead or super Jewish or something. Just see if there are any jewelry boxes. There's a box in the middle of the room, like on a little pedestal, she whispered. Hold on, I gotta use the light. It's dark. The dog finished his business and turned, pawing at the snow to cover his mess. The old man stared down at his pet, still as a statue. Grace again, in a whisper. It's not even locked. Big wooden box. I heard a heavy creak from the phone. Then a sudden blast of air like she'd crossed through a wind tunnel. Clattering sounds. I could tell the phone had fallen to the floor and Grace's voice became distant. Holy shit! She said. What is it? Hey! She fumbled with the phone. Some kind of... I can't believe this. It's like a giant ruby or something. Or, or an emerald? I don't understand the color. It's like... It's like... Oh my god! Down the street, the old man suddenly snapped his head to the side. He seemed to be listening to the air, his entire body rigid and at attention. Just grab it and get out of there, I said. It's like it's glowing or something. Grace whispered. It's like there's something moving inside of it. Grace, seriously, just pinch it and let's go. Now she was frightened. It's like it's looking at me. I don't like this. I don't like this. What's looking at you? Grace. 
A meaty, crackling sound suddenly pierced the winter air, a bundle of bones snapping in two, and down the street the old man dropped to all fours, tense like a great cat. Before I could even process what I was seeing, he launched himself across the snow and sped away between houses, legs over arms, lightning fast. I reeled and blinked my eyes, trying to stop what could only be a hallucination, but the old man was history, leaving a settling cloud of glistening snow in his wake. The Doberman unleashed a painful howl, ran around in a quick circle, and then galloped away in the trail of its master. Grace screamed through the phone. It's in my fucking head! It's in my fucking head! Grace, get out of there! He's coming home! I broke into a run, shouting into the phone. Get out of there now! Grace! Grace! But the phone was already dead. Part 2 In the hospital, I had what the chart called frequent breaks with reality. I imagined I was a toddler in the deep end of a pool, paddling for the edge while an invisible hand tried to force my head underwater. My legs pistoned desperately, but I was too weak and felt the life draining from my chest. I felt absolute panic. While under these spells, I'd lifted and swung my IV pole at the other patients so many times that the nurses started weighing the base of it down with sandbags. The reality of the long hospital room and the reality of the pool were indistinguishable. I wanted out of both at the same time, and my body did the work it needed to do. I experienced it and watched it, but I had no part in the decision-making. Up the hills, down the hills, cold sweat clung to my body as I sprinted under the glaring winter sun to the old man's house. When I finally arrived in McClellan Heights, I saw that our car was gone, or at least no longer parked in the spot we'd agreed on. I slowed my pace as I turned onto the old man's street, calling Grace's phone once again but getting nothing. The muffled sound of a loud, deep voice seemed to be coming from the man's house, some sort of shouting or chanting. Was he shouting at my girl? How had he moved so fast? Was I in the hospital even now? I stopped in front of the house and dialed the phone again, panting. A small bzzz shot back from the man's yard. I crossed to the sound and saw it there in the snow. Grace's phone. She'd made it out. The shouting sounds from inside had stopped. Getting to my feet, I saw the old man wrench a curtain aside in the house's top window and stare down at me. His expression was obscured by the sun's reflection, but the sight of him filled me with rage. I thought about pissing on his lawn right in front of him just to say, Fuck you! To let him know who I was! But I realized in that moment that my jeans were already soaked. I'd lost it completely on the run there, like an out-of-control child. I had to get home. I vomited twice on the way back, nervous about Grace, sick with exertion, and sure that a squad car would be driving up at any moment to stop me. What seemed like twenty years later, I made it to our house. The car was parked on the street. <laughs> Tears welled in my eyes as I jogged inside. Grace? No response. I hurried toward the bedroom. Grace? She was there hanging by her scarf from the ceiling fan, the tips of her boots touching the floor and her knees bent, long black hair dangling from her head. A notebook was open on the ground, her limp arms extending toward it. Touching her, hoisting her up and brushing the hair back from her face, I knew she was dead. 
No amount of kissing, no amount of crying, no amount of denial would make it not true. Clutching her by the waist with one arm, I tried to untie the scarf, but it was too knotted up. And when I had to release her again to go at it with both hands, the way she swung lifelessly back into place made my heart plummet into my stomach. Once on the ground, I untied the other end from her tiny neck and pulled her to me. Guys in the service had killed themselves this way, tying their throats to bed frames and leaning forward to choke out. It took enormous force of will to make your body accept death. Grace's feet had been touching the floor. She could have stopped herself from dying, but she hadn't. I lifted the notebook. The writing was jagged and hasty, but it belonged to Grace. I'm sorry. You won't understand why, but I can't be alive. I've seen what it will do. I love you, but I can't look at you again or you might know it too. The burning eye is in my head even now like I'm sick with it. I hid the thing. I covered it, blinded it, stole it, and hid it. I won't think or write where. It's all I could do to stop it. It's seen me once and may come in the dark, but it will never know the hiding place. It's not your fault. Go away if you can. I love you forever. Get away. That was all. It made no sense. The invisible hand was pushing me underwater once again and I was drowning. I was drowning. The sound of the front door woke me. It was dark outside. I was crumbled on the floor with Grace, a string of drool leading from my mouth to her sleeve. I lowered her head to the floor and sat up, wiping at my face, listening. There were people in the living room, but nobody was calling out to me. Just footsteps on the floorboards, cautious, heavy. Couldn't be police. My joints cracked as I pushed myself to a crouching position and the footsteps stopped. A creak and then another creak. There were two men. I pictured their positions in the room. I'd been trained for this. Whoever they were, I was going to kill them. When the footsteps started again, I scrambled to the wall, unplugging all of the cords and powering down the blazing hot space heaters. The men sensed me as well and hustled toward the bedroom. I pulled the comforter from the mattress and used it to lift the heaviest heater, a blocky industrial relic with a glowing metal grill. I flattened myself against the wall, and as the first man stepped into the doorframe, I swung around and slammed the heater into his face, throwing the comforter over him at the same time and using my weight to force his bulky body to the ground. I heard his flesh sizzle as we fell, accompanied by hog-like shrieks from beneath the blanket. I looked up to clock the other intruder, a skinny guy in a black polo and ski mask. He was pulling a gun from his belt, but had no coordination. Before he could level the thing at me, I pushed off from his friend and barreled toward him. My shoulder caught him in the midsection and forced him into the wall with a satisfying oof, the gun dropping out of his hand and clattering across the floor. His insect arms flailed as I grappled him, spinning him away from the wall and throwing him down. He fell flat on his back and I pounded the side of my hand into his ear, seeing the other man continue to struggle under the blanket in my periphery. With both men down, I took a chance to roll across the floor and grab the handgun, a 1911 with a well-worn grip. But the thin man wasn't staying put. He leapt onto my back and wrapped his hands around my face, trying to get his bony fingers into my eyes. 
He was strong for a skinny guy, but had no close quarter smarts, and in seconds I had him on his back again, pushing my forearm into his throat to hold him down. With my gun hand, I pulled his ski mask away and screamed into his face. But my voice stopped short when his features became clear. The man had no nose. A cheek was missing, revealing only bony teeth, and a tongue rolling around like a burrowing worm. The skin around his eyes was jagged and worn away, and the eyeballs flashed back and forth in a revolting panic. Fear overcame me like electric shocks against the skin. Involuntary panic in the face of disfigurement. It wasn't human. The sound of a breaking window stunned me back to life, and I saw that the big man was gone. The thing beneath me wailed, choking. The sound of it was infuriating. I looked down into its glistening, sick eyes and felt no pity. I crammed the ski mask into its mouth to shut it up, pressed the muzzle against the fabric and blew its fucking head off. Chalky bits of skull flew around the room and I went deaf for a minute. Didn't matter. I ran to the bedroom. The window was broken out. Grace's body was gone. The big man was gone. A wig was lying on the floor like roadkill. Flying back to the living room, I reached the front door in time to see a hearse pulling away from the curb, hasty and sloppy, the big man behind the wheel. I was halfway through the door before I remembered car keys and spun back into the living room. As I ripped through Grace's purse to find what I needed, I saw the body of the skinny man still rolling and crawling around on the floor, headless, but alive. Reality had broken forever, and I was living here now, wherever here was. It didn't matter anymore. I only wished I had time to kill the man again. The hearse driver tried to weave his way through the neighborhoods, but he should have chosen busy streets if he'd wanted to lose me. Traffic kills the chase, but in neighborhoods there's space to move. I can find you. I caught him speeding down an alleyway behind a sizzler, headed for the old man's place just like I thought he'd be. He knew he was fucked as soon as he saw me squeal to a stop at the end of the alley, cutting off his exit. He hit the brakes, and in that moment we got a good look at each other. The marks of the heating grill were stamped across his face, another half-completed mug right out of Fangoria. This one had a nose and cheeks, but portions of his head were missing, and his exposed brain rested within a crown of jagged skull fragments, pink and naked. The wig had been his. The death wagon flew into reverse and I maneuvered to bear down on it. I sped over the pockmarked pavement towards the car's nose, but Grillface backed out onto the street and threw it into drive before I could mash him. Punching the gas, I managed to clip his rear bumper and the hearse fishtail on the slushy road, now pointing at the Sizzler parking lot. Grillface hopped the curb and flew through the lot, almost hitting an old lady and sending two teenage girls diving into the bushes. I skidded out, punched the gas again and popped over the curb, racing off after the long black cars that blasted onto the restaurant-lined avenue. It was the fastest goddamn funeral procession in history. Once on the open road, I hauled ass to his taillights, then swung into the left lane and sped up before Grillface could block me. I wanted to point my gun at the motherfucker's head, but as soon as I pulled alongside of him, I saw that he had the same idea, the muzzle of a sawed-off shotgun resting in the crook of his arm, pointing through the driver's open window. The gun discharged before I could even think about shooting back, and glass blasted into the car from the windows on both sides of me, slicing into my face cutting into my eardrums and making me blind. I tried to hold the wheel steady, but when I opened my eyes I saw that I drifted into the opposite lane. A teenager flying down the road on his bicycle threw up his hands, his mouth making a perfect O shape that would have been comical in any other situation. 
Yanking the lever for the emergency brake and spinning the wheel, I tried to avoid the kid, but felt the car lifting off of the ground. Then, chaos erupted. This time I felt everything. I felt my nose hit the wheel twice and two quick bounces, smashing one side and then the other. The ceiling crashed down on my head like a steel anvil, pushing it to the side and stretching the muscles in my neck to the breaking point. Finally, something in my back gave way with a loud pop, and numbness flooded my body like Novocaine. In a moment, all was still. The world was upside down, and rivulets of a thick, warm liquid were crawling up my face. Through the window, a bicycle wheel was spinning, and I saw the teenager crawling across the pavement, dazed. As I started to lose focus, I imagined I was back in Kunar. The boy was Gustavo, and he was alive. I wanted to laugh. It had all been a nightmare. My friend was alive. And then everything faded away. When the old man looked at me this time, he was inches away from my face. Tell me where it is. His voice was deep and slimy. I know that you've hidden it. You and that mulatto whore. I wasn't sure when I'd woken up or how long I'd been that way. I felt a total disconnection from my body and could only stare at the old man in a daze. His skin was hairless and smooth, as if his jowls and wrinkles were sculpted rather than earned through long life. The spittle in one corner of his mouth foamed up more and more as he interrogated me until his tongue finally slid out to snatch it. But it wasn't a tongue. It was more like a bundle of pink tubes, all squirming together to imitate a tongue. I will give you one chance to tell me. If you do not, you will live in one of my boxes underground, forever starving. But if you tell me now, I will give you relief. Pain shot through my leg to my groin and exploded into a million stabbing clusters. I screamed so high and so loud that the echoes bouncing off of the walls sounded like a squad of witches buzzing a battlefield. The old man turned away, holding his ears, and I saw Grillface remove a long, long needle from the base of my foot. His exposed brain was covered by a black stocking cap. Suddenly, everything was sharp again. I was naked, strapped to a table in a small antiseptic room, the walls a thick white marble, some kind of furnace in the corner. The old man spoke to me, the spoiled air in his mouth spilling out like oil. All I have to do is say the words and you'll be free. Tell me, where is it? I don't know. My voice was hoarse, strange. He closed his mouth and stepped back, his expression blank. Put him in the box and I'll call up the girl. They worked together to undo the straps and Grillface lifted me into his arms. I ordered my body to attack him, but it only trembled, seized by the paralysis of a nightmare. He shook his head at me and stepped toward the room's large industrial door, throwing me over his shoulder so he could work the handle. None of my insides felt right. I was a ghost in a human suit. He opened the door and I managed to lift my head a bit, just enough to glimpse the old man pick up a rusty Folgers can and pour what looked like ashes onto the table. The door slammed shut. Now we were in a cellar, probably below the old man's house. It reeked of death, a smell of rot that was almost physical. The old man's voice erupted into chants behind the closed door, stifled but audible. I felt myself being carried across the room, and then the world rolled over as I was dumped into a box. 
It was a tight space, made of aluminum, probably a modified deep freeze. My body was folded in half, ass down, legs up, my knees facing my eyes and my busted up arms folded in between. Grillface turned away for a moment and then turned back with a padlock in his hand, looking down at me. He paused as he reached up to close the lid, staring down with an almost human expression. Was it pity? That was when I heard the scream, muffled from behind the door of the old man's torture room, but unmistakable. It was Grace. A sudden burst of strength filled my body and I clenched all of my broken muscles, lunging up and reaching for Grillface's stocking cap. I clawed my hand over it and got a tight hold on the jagged skull beneath. He slapped at my arm with his hands and squealed, taken completely by surprise. I wouldn't let go, and the grip gave me enough leverage to shake the freezer back and forth. Between my exertions and his struggles to get free, the box finally capsized, falling to the side and bringing the man down with it. I let go of his skull and forced myself out of the box, stumbling like I was drunk as I climbed my feet. Grillface stumbled as well, but was quick to come after me. I fell back against a wall as he approached and did my best to put up my guard. He stopped in his tracks and looked at me, tilting his head to the side. Then he sidled over to an open cabinet, keeping his eyes on me as he removed his sawed-off shotgun. He'd finally decided I was a threat. He pointed the gun at me and I pushed myself off of the wall, gathering strength as I moved toward him. The air ripped into pieces with the sound of the gun's discharge and a heavy force punched me in the side, shocking me with intense pain and flipping me to the ground. I looked down to see a frayed hole in the side of my stomach. Grillface stepped over to me and looked down again, this time empty of any pity. He pointed the gun at my head. The door to the torture room swung open. What is all of this? Grillface turned his head and I heard Grace whimpering in the background. Drawing on everything I had, I raised my legs and wrapped them around the motherfucker's calves, rolling to the side and breaking his balance. He tipped like a tree and hit the stone floor hard, his grip loosening on the gun. The old man stepped back, pointing his arm at me and spewing gibberish. Ogthrod, I eef, gibble, eeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeeee
the wound that hadn't killed me or kept me from moving, just like the broken back hadn't stopped me. The broken back that had disappeared. We're already dead, I whispered to her. Let's get a drink. As we fumbled out into the frozen night, I noticed the Doberman watching us from the house's top window. We would be hunted, but I didn't care. At that moment, we had each other once again, and that was enough. One Small, Valuable Thing was written and read by Chad Pfeiffer. This story, as well as Snack Time by Chris Lackey, will be available in the Lovecraftian pulp anthology, Shotguns vs. Cthulhu, coming soon from Stone Skin Press. Learn more at stoneskinpress.com. Music for this reading was provided by The Human Aftertaste from their album, Pikmin's Song. Production and additional scoring by Chad Pfeiffer. One small, valuable thing has been brought to you by the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. Nothing, I just laugh because the cat's fucking freaking out in the background.